Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 10, First Nation Soldiers in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. As you know, we just entered the year 2018 and are now at the centenary of the final year of the First World War. Well, when that war broke out back in August 1914, many Canadian Indigenous men sought to enlist in the Canadian Expeditionary Force to serve the very country that had spent decades marginalizing their people. Though at first excluded, over the course of the war, thousands would eventually serve. And this is their story. This week's recommendation for reading is For King and Kannada, Canadian Indians in the First World War by Timothy C. Weingard a well-researched narrative providing a comprehensive look at the story of First Nation communities and the First World War. I am, however, a bit confused by his use of the term Indian to denote Aboriginal, Indigenous, and or First Nations. Perhaps I'll get clarification of this at a later date. Let's begin. Canada had no choice whether it was at war with Germany, as its foreign policy was still controlled by London, However, it could certainly control the scope of what its military support would look like. Many in government, including Prime Minister Robert Borden, believed that this war could offer an opportunity for Canada to assert itself on a bigger international stage. Thus, the Canadian government sought to provide manpower in order to increase its reputation. As well, The more men Canada was able to send overseas, the better position it would be in in its ability to gain lucrative contracts for the production of munitions as well as the sale of Canada's wheat. Thus, for men like Robert Borden, the size of the Canadian expeditionary force, that is the the military, the Canadian military that we would send overseas, could bring money and reputation to the young country. The population of Canada in 1914 was 7.8 million people, of which 103,000 were status First Nations, and another 3,400 were Inuit. Of the total population of Canada, roughly 54% were of British ancestry, with almost 11% 
being born in Britain itself. When war broke out in August 1914, most Canadian politicians and military commanders believed it would be a short war, one that would end by Christmas. Within this atmosphere, a non-official policy of exclusion existed, whereby spots in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, the CEF, would be reserved for the white British sons of Canada, especially those with direct familial links to Great Britain. The first contingent that set sail for England, roughly 36,000 men, was 64% born in Great Britain. 27% of it were English-speaking Canadians. 3.5% were French-speaking Canadians. For most Canadian politicians and military officials in the early days of the war, there was no room in the CEF for Canada's First Nations. Regardless, many First Nation communities and their leaders offered support when war broke out. Yet even after Canadian soldiers received their baptism of fire at the Battle of Second Ypres in April 1915, and even after people started to realize that not only would this war not be a short one, but it would see unprecedented levels of casualties, white recruitment levels back home were easily strong enough to continue recruitment and even increase Canada's commitment overseas. Interestingly, the precedent for Indigenous participation on the Western Front was first set by Great Britain and France, not at home in Canada. You see, France deployed battalions of Moroccans and Senegalese from her African colonies. In fact, white Canadian soldiers would fight alongside North African troops at the Battle of Second Ypres, while Britain deployed an Indian expeditionary force on the Western Front with a wide range of infantry, cavalry, and artillery units from all over India. Canada, however, resisted following this example set by the great powers. Under the British North America Act, that's Canada's founding document, First Nations were not Canadian citizens, but wards of the state. They did not have the right to vote or rights to full citizenship. It's incredible, if you think about it, that a people who had been so badly ignored, marginalized, and mistreated by the Canadian state would want to fight on its behalf at all. Yet there were numerous inquiries made by bands across the country asking about enlistment. Not days after Canada was officially at war, messages were arriving at the desk of the Minister of Militia, Sir Sam Hughes, inquiring about the policy towards First Nations enlistment. In southwestern Ontario, for instance, which contained about 3.5% of Canada's total status population, recruiting officers were unsure of what to do with the large number of Indigenous men arriving to enlist. When pressed, Sir Sam Hughes essentially used a half-baked excuse that the Germans may not extend the courtesies of civilized war to Canada's Indigenous population, and thus it was better to keep them out of the conflict. This would eventually make the rounds throughout recruiting stations all over the country and set in motion the unofficial exclusion policy that would be practiced for 1914 and 1915. What's interesting is that a number of bands throughout Canada framed their offers of assistance in terms of supporting Queen Victoria's grandson, King Edward. Queen Victoria, of course, being the monarch whom these groups had originally signed treaties with. Many indigenous groups offered both men and even financial support 
to the British cause through the Canadian government. This is an interesting perspective on the relationship of many First Nation communities in Canada. Many chiefs and communities saw the relationship as one forged directly with the British Crown, especially those groups that had signed treaties dating back as far as the Royal Proclamation of 1763, when Britain announced its policy towards the people inhabiting what was New France and had now become British North America. Canada was simply an intermediary in a cross-Atlantic relationship. For example, Chief Jacobs, chief of the Grand Council of the Chippewa Nation of Western Ontario, wrote to the Canadian government, stating that his people were willing to offer help towards, and I quote, the mother country in its present struggle in Europe. The Indian race, as a rule, are loyal to England. This loyalty was created by the noblest queen that ever lived, Queen Victoria, end quote. The chiefs of the Six Nations Iroquois of Grand River offered warriors and money directly to Britain, stating, and I quote, The Six Nations do not belong to Canada and wish to make their contributions direct through their brother Chief Caraconti, the Duke of Connaught, Governor General of Canada, as a token of the alliance existing between the Six Nations and the British Crown, end quote. This statement is fascinating in that in this language, there is a direct rejection of Canadian sovereignty over the Six Nations. In many ways, this was an expression of Six Nations' autonomy. Years later, the Canadian government would forcibly disband the Six Nations' political leadership as it saw actions like this a threat. Before we continue, let me remind you that you can always find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com, as well as on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Instagram. On our website and Facebook page, there are donation links by PayPal and Patreon. Both of these provide secure, safe, and easy options to donate to the podcast. We rely exclusively on donations from our listeners, and we are truly grateful for every dollar sent our way. So thank you. Now, there were numerous attempts to create all indigenous military units focused specifically around the idea of light infantry, so like scouting and sniping roles. But all of these attempts were rebuffed by Canadian officials. Nonetheless, it is important to note that while there was an unofficial policy of exclusion emanating from the top, there were certainly indigenous men that were able to get past this invisible barrier and enlist. Across the country, indigenous men enlisted for a variety of reasons, just like their white counterparts, some for money, some for work, some for adventure, some for social status, and some because of the warrior culture that had yet to be eradicated by the Canadian government's policies of assimilation. This policy was carried out through, obviously, reserves, residential schools, etc., Many leaders saw First Nations participation in the war as a means to lobby the British government to pressure the Canadian government to reverse some of their most oppressive policies, while others saw service as a means to gain citizenship rights within Canada. Many Indigenous men were active members of their local militia and went overseas as part of general mobilization. In many instances, the ability for First Nations to enlist fell to the local recruitment officer. In most cases, 
the local recruitment officer was subject to the pervading prejudices of the time and saw the indigenous recruit through a lens of racism and disdain. In these cases, the recruit was turned away. In other cases, though much more rare, the local recruiting officer saw First Nations as possessing inherent warrior abilities and approved their application regardless of the policy from the top. We know that indigenous men were part of the first contingent of the CEF that went overseas in 1914, including the legendary sniper and scout Francis Pegamagabo, who we will spend an entire episode on next episode. And we also know that there were at least two indigenous men serving in the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, a privately raised battalion that was the first Canadian contingent to arrive in Europe. It should be noted that there was no universal support for the war amongst Canadian indigenous communities. Just like within quote-unquote white Canada, various groups within the indigenous community did not endorse the war. Specifically, many leaders denounced the idea of their young men going to fight and possibly die for a country that had wronged their people in so many ways. Now, the recruitment narrative would begin to change quite dramatically by the end of 1915. The British, along with the French, had suffered catastrophic casualties. Never before had a war seemed to eat its young so rapidly with so little to show for it. The war that was to be over by Christmas was now locked in a bitter, brutal trench deadlock. In October of 1915, the British War Office specifically issued a request to its dominions to begin actively recruiting indigenous men. Shortly after the British began to pressure the dominions for inclusion of its indigenous population, Borden committed Canada to 500,000 soldiers overseas. For a force this size to exist, Borden would need 25,000 recruits a month continuously. In 1915, the average monthly enlistment was 13,200. Recruitment efforts needed to be stepped up. Under pressure to raise more men in December of 1915, First Nations enlistment was officially endorsed by the Minister of Militia, Sam Hughes. This even included the acceptance of First Nations from the United States. Estimates range in dozens to hundreds that eventually served in the CEF. By 1916, the battalion with the highest percentage of First Nations soldiers in it was the 114th Battalion, with 348 Indigenous members, roughly 30% of full strength. The 114th actually created two companies that were entirely filled with Indigenous men, including the officers being of Indigenous descent. This battalion would eventually be given the name Brock's Rangers, in honor of General Isaac Brock, the British general who fell at the Battle of Queenston Heights defending Upper Canada from an American invasion. Brock at this battle commanded a Mohawk contingent that was greatly feared by the enemy Americans. The regimental flag for Brock's Rangers was an image of two crossed tomahawks, and below it was the motto, For King and Country. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A similar battalion, the 107th, was raised in Winnipeg and commanded by legendary folk hero Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Campbell, who will get his own episode down the line. This guy is like the Canadian Davy Crockett, but way cooler. Over half of this battalion was indigenous, though it had less indigenous officers than the 114th. This battalion became unofficially known as the Timberwolf Battalion. Unfortunately, both these battalions, like many others arriving in Europe in 1916, would be broken up soon after its arrival in England. Most of the soldiers would be sent piecemeal to the front to reinforce already depleted units in the trenches. What is noticeable about the recruitment at this stage is that most of the recruitment efforts were focused east of Manitoba. Many Canadian officials felt that Ontario, Quebec contained nations with more of a warrior culture and thus felt they were most suitable for recruitment. Obviously, nobody had thought to study the Haida people of the Pacific Northwest, for instance. Of course, this regional or geographical bias would change by the end of 1916 when casualty rates continued to climb and recruitment numbers began to level off. 1917 would be a turning point year in the story of recruitment. The CEF would fight and win the battles of Vimy Ridge, Hill 70, though being stopped at Lens, and eventually Passchendaele. It would cement itself as one of the elite formations within the British Army and thus continue to be put in some of the toughest fights on the Western Front. Simply put, this meant more and more casualties. By the end of 1917, this desperation for able-bodied men would manifest itself in the controversial passing of conscription. Like in Quebec, conscription was controversial for many First Nation communities, especially those who opposed the war. Volunteering was one thing, but being forced to go and fight a white man's war was entirely different. Many First Nation groups sent reminders to the government that conscription only applied to citizens of Canada. As First Nations were not considered citizens, they could not be conscripted. For instance, writing from British Columbia, a number of chiefs stated, and I quote, We object to the Militia Act and a ruling which has been made under it conscripting our men on the grounds that at no time have our Indians had any say in the making of the laws in Canada. End quote. Others pointed out agreements made in their treaties with the British Crown, whose language indicated that they no longer had to serve in the Crown's wars. I'm going to quote again from this. When I gave my country to the Great Mother Queen in the year of 1871, wrote a chief from Manitoba, I was told that time that our Great Mother Queen should never fight us in her war. She would never enter your Indians in her war because she is strong enough and her soldiers are strong enough. End quote. Some bands, like the Iroquois Six Nations, told the government that it had no right to conscript from a sovereign people at all. Others simply told representatives of the Canadian government to go to hell. Indigenous resistance to conscription actually worked. Pressure from active First Nation groups, as well as general non-compliance, 
from many within Canada's Indigenous community eventually resulted in the government exempting First Nations from conscription. Interestingly, this exemption was kept as quiet as possible for fear of angering French Canadians who had already taken to the streets to protest conscription and would not benefit from a massive general exemption. By 1918, indigenous soldiers could be found all throughout the CEF, from pioneer and labor battalions to soldiers on the firing step to snipers, scouts, officers, NCOs, and the common infantryman. Indigenous soldiers won numerous awards for bravery. Most notably, two military crosses were awarded to indigenous soldiers. Uh, the military cross is the third highest award in the British military. Well, of course, Francis Pegamagabo would receive the military medal three different times. Statistics are not easy to keep track of, but it is estimated that 4,000 Indigenous soldiers served in the CEF, and this does not include non-status First Nations, Inuit, or Métis. This number represented 35% of Indigenous males of military age in Canada roughly the same percentage of Canadians of European descent that served. 1,200 Indigenous soldiers were wounded, went missing, or were killed. First Nations men fought in every major battle and experienced the tragedy, triumph, pain, and suffering that accommodated all soldiers who served in that most horrible of wars. Incredibly, they did this for a country and a people that had spent centuries ignoring them, fighting them, marginalizing them, attempting to assimilate them, and attempting to eradicate their culture. Sadly, while many First Nation veterans would go on to be prominent Indigenous leaders and activists after the war, it would take another half a century more, including another world war, for the Canadian government to finally start taking steps to redress their long list of wrongs. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.